You're listening to Extra Textual. This is a show where we talk about an idea, concept, theme, trend, and relate it to some kind of media like film, TV, video games, books, music, and hopefully discover something about ourselves or our culture along the way. Thanks for listening. Okay, welcome to the show. This is Eli Steenledge, and with me as always is... Jeremy Holiday. And uh, this is our year-end sort of wrap-up show where we kind of discuss uh, the last year, in this case 2018. We usually come to it a little bit later because we are not professional um, <laughs> critics or Eli. do this for a living. So we're catching up as much as we can. My kind of arbitrary deadline is usually like the Oscars, yeah. even though I don't really pay much attention to them it's like yeah. the last it makes sense thing that other we can, people are talking about yeah, things they like from the last year yeah. but we do have a special guest with us tonight who is a film critic for consequence of sound how are you doing tonight blake goble uh great really really happy to be here guys thank you for having me on the podcast uh i just want to say uh i was listening to the last couple episodes of uh, extra textual and it's like oh my god they got a soundboard i hope i get to hear it in my episode <laughs> oh. and uh, no, but, but seriously, I, I really appreciate what you guys do. I appreciate the opportunity to be here. I, mm-hmm. I like that you're kind of like a pro-art deconstruction and dissemination podcast, but uh, enough flattery. Really, I'm just happy to be here and happy to uh, share some thoughts, insights, and analysis and ornery comments about the movies of 2018. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Blake is the uh, senior staff writer at Consequence of Sound, writing about film. And I wish uh, we're... We normally don't record through the computer directly, so we don't have the soundboard. Otherwise, I would have given like your name and you know title like some nice reverb. Yeah. Um, but we'll try it. Maybe like in post production, I can do. Yeah, that we can fix you. that in post. Yeah, I'd love some air horns. That's all I ask. Yes, oh. great. Yeah, yeah. We, we can make one of those auto tune things. I think. Yeah, yeah. Maybe some auto tune. You here. can do some oh, like absolutely. samples on this soundboard, can't you, Jeremy? Yeah, you can. You can do one sample. One sample. Okay, we'll work on that. <laughs> So we're talking about, um, like I said, kind of the year in film total. And here at uh, Extra Textual, we don't really do like a straight rundown of our sort of top 10 or top 20 or whatever it is, even though some of us do kind of make those lists in yes, some ways. Yes, uh, some of us do that. Not Jeremy. Not me. <laughs> so <laughs> uh, he doesn't believe in lists. We'll just say that. Oh, that's totally not true. But I, I don't make a list of movies. Anyways. So we do kind of try to make some connections between some of our tastes and uh, just films that might make interesting conversations between all of us. So we'll kind of look at that and we'll also kind of connect them through some different themes that we can pull out from the year uh, as we usually like to do something with themes. Um, But first I want to just kind of mention a little bit like these lists are a little bit um, arbitrary, very subjective. I think a lot of critics talk about that it's very easy to say, you know, like, how could you not put this film on your list? Or how could you put that on your list? Um, That movie is horrible. So it is sort of subjective at the end of the day, but we can have some great conversations. I want to kind of hear how you guys kind of pick out what what you sticks with you for the year. But I think for me, like it is a lot about like surprise, what surprised me, what sort of moved me or thrilled me. And, And by surprise, I mean, it could be like, a camera move that's like a little thing in a film that really surprised me. Um, I'll talk more about that maybe in something like First Reformed, 
um, where it sort of breaks out of its mold and really uh, was one of the big surprises of the year for me. But it could be also just like larger things too, um, that like a whole film that really took me on a, an emotional journey or connected me in with me in a certain way. And, and that's kind of why I say it can be subjective because those things can hit us in different ways. Um, but what do you guys sort of think about when you're reflecting on sort of what stood out to you in the year? Well, uh, I mean, uh, just looking at like the films that I saw and that I liked this year, mm-hmm. um, I, I mean, I, I found that like I was interested in films about small things. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Won't You Be My Neighbor, um, Leave No Trace, uh, this film I saw at the film festival called American Animals, which is like a documentary about a real small time college heist. Um, you know, I mean, for those who listen to the show, like you've probably heard me talk about how much I hate uh, Infinity War um, and some of the other, you know, big stories of this year. Um, but I thought that there was a lot of, um, especially in Won't You Be My Neighbor. I mean, there was just like by the end of the film where they break out of that space and talk a little bit about the modern social media world for a mm. tiny bit. Um, I, 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 it felt so quaint. Mm. Um, but there was a way in which. It, it, you know, it seemed like the, the if there's a, a cyclicality to the intensity of uh, addressing your audience, that it was clearly moving in the other direction. Where like it's not bigger and better and faster and oh my right. effing g is kind of like <laughs> to blow you away. Yeah. Let's just tell a little story about a guy. Mm-hmm. You know, um, you know, and certainly like there's a, a lot of ways in which like Fred Rogers' life and his work, you know, are are embodied in the way that film was presented. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just felt like the films that I liked most this year weren't ones that were like like begging for my attention. Um, they were uh, presenting me with some information um, at, at, a, at a pace which I found comfortable mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, let me enjoy it. Like, like Leave No Trace, like the pacing of Leave No Trace, like what really happens? I mean, there's, yeah. there's not this like central conflict and resolution that you can track. I mean, it's like some stuff happens, there's some tension, mm-hmm. it's gone. And then the end of the film, like there's the tension has been gone for a while and right. a lot of the end of it. So the epilogue. So, mm-hmm. I mean, the, those are the things that I found, um, you know, the things that I picked Except up. Except maybe like into the Spider-Verse, which is really in your well, face. But, but here's the thing, like, visual. but yeah, into the Spider-Verse is fabulous. <laughs> um, uh, and, but I also felt like it, it was the. I mean, we've had a. What, there's. If you want to listen to an episode where I gush about, listen to yeah, one of our episodes. About it, yeah. um, but I also feel like it's one of the few films, um, kind of like um, uh, Moulin Rouge, that mm-hmm. like takes the fact seriously. That like you can do anything on the screen. You can say anything. You mm-hmm. can like totally assault your audience with thing after thing after thing after thing, and each one thing is better than the next. I mean, it's yeah. the only um, it's sort of like an assault on your uh, your. Uh, a sense of what's going to happen in expectations. Mm-hmm. And it's like, you can't, you can't do that in half measure. Yeah. And I think like, so I guess there, forward, there are yeah. those contrasts, you know, in some sense, like Incredibles too. you know, mm-hmm. um, big, lots of stuff and they do it well. Um, and also to contrast that, something that quiet and well-paced and interesting and, and about really low stakes that are important, which are very human. Yeah. What about you, Blake? So, a couple different contributing factors. So uh, at a front-loading level, I, I don't know if I'm pulling the curtain back a little too much on the process here. As uh, <laughs> a, a voting member of the Chicago Film Critics Association, mm-hmm. um, one of the perks and curses is uh, the studios and public relations companies, bless them, uh, send you just 
uh, truckloads of screeners, links, yeah. hard disks. And all of a sudden between mid-November and mid-December, the kind of the voting and screening period, I find myself in just like a deluge of content, as it were. All mm. of a sudden, I'm kind of like avoidant of summer spectacle. To your point, Jeremy, uh, Infinity War. Can I cuss on this podcast? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I was way too old for that shit. Uh, <laughs> I, it was like, Dear I'm... God. It was just... Yeah, I... To your point, I kind of like something. I like stuff that's a little intimate. I like stuff that's emotional. I like stuff that's kind of personal. Mm-hmm. I like stuff that's political, that's relevant, that's racial, that and not kinda, stupid. <laughs> no, well, no. To be fair, I I like stupid in some. If if it's well, done no, well, yeah. I mean, that's that, that's totally <laughs> but, a great response. That's yeah. Fair. Uh, like Mandy is is arguably very stupid at points, and that's what I dig about it. Grind yeah, metal you. for nonsense, right? Yeah. Um. But I mean, I, you know, and I'll, I'll break this down thematically in a second, but the, the first and foremost standard I have is, um, you know, it's Saturday, I've rushed through three to five movies mm. uh, with as much time as I can. What were the ones that stuck? What is staying yeah. with me 24 hours later? What's with me two days later? What's with me 10 days later? And memorability, short term, uh, long term, it's kind of a it's a very important grading standard for me. And I get it. These lists are usually kind of number fluid. I presented to you guys a movie list that I created of my top or ranking every movie I've seen this year. I know for a fact that I'm going to be down on Bohemian Rhapsody for a long time. (laughs) I know I'm going to be extremely high on Black Klansman for a long time. Mm -hmm. But there are some movies that kind of like shift and adjust. I really like Can You Ever Forgive Me? But it kind of warmed its way up to me in the sense that it was a film about artistic process in a very sincere and mundane and an adult way. Death of Stalin I thought was really funny and it kind of grew on me because I thought it was such a creative approach. And if Beale Street Could Talk I thought was a little too airy at first, but then all of a sudden the artistry and imagery just kind of emblazons itself uh, in the back of my mind in a way that I just can't ignore. And then uh, you know, I go back to movie. I change my list for here and there because it's mm-hmm. a fun board hobby. We also have, <laughs> right. up, we have to do our top fives. Um, but the interesting thing is, as I'm looking back in 2018, the movies that are of interest to me kind of had to deal with a couple core themes like um, living in America, not to be James Brown here, but mm-hmm. um, Black Klansman, If Beale Street Could Talk, Sorry to Bother You, Vice, America to Me, Leave No Trace, um, Monrovia, Indiana by Frederick Wiseman, or even Private Life by Tamara Jenkins, and Mm -hmm. Widows by Steve McQueen, Eighth Grade. Sorry, I'm just rambling. But these are all movies that are kind of about, like, very individualized American experiences and kind of like what it's like to scrape by in America or just kind of figure yourself out in in modern America. Mm -hmm. Other stories I kind of did like this year was stuff of political savagery, um, Black Klansman, Death of Stalin, Vice... Um, you know, I even like stuff about artistic process, creation and inspiration. Can you ever forgive me? Other side of the wind, which was the miracle that that happened. Um, let the sunshine in by Claire Denis, um, even never uh, look away. The Von Donnersmerk film, just stuff about creation and kind of creativity and inspiration were for, were films that I found, um, generally quite, you know, uh, Fascinating, But then, of course, as we kind of discussed before, there's also just the well-done genre film that sneaks up on me, like Hereditary or Mandy, where it subverts expectations. Or even Paddington, the children's film done to done faultlessly. Yeah. Or or Zama is technically a genre film and then it's kind of like the 
stoic heroic movie deconstructed through the eyes of a total shitbird on an island but we could talk <laughs> about that later too and just stories about non-whiteness i make this joke every time uh this time of year comes around sundance you know it's the perennial film festival about you know what it's like to just be kind of middle class and white in america and i i grow a little tired of it and i find myself attracted to uh, stories about uh, non-white audiences non-american audiences as well mm-hmm. and it like it needs to be something kind of deeply flawed or compelling in the American character, what's wrong with it, or it just needs to be something about perspective uh, outside of this country that kind of interests me. And mind you, this is me putting buzzwords on like a list of 70 movies I've seen over the last year, and only about 20 of them are going to stick in my uh, uh, subconscious, maybe 10 if I'm lucky right. and don't go frail yeah. 10 mm-hmm. minutes. Yeah, so um, it's, you know, it's a blend, but the more I think about it, the more it's like, maybe the the modern america i can't help but think in radical like man vice just really kind of cuts to the core of american amnesia if beale street could talk really speaks to the the struggle of being non-white still to this day through its 1970s lens and things like that yeah i I agree i think i kind of tapped into some of the similar themes that you were talking about that might kind of guide our conversation uh i think definitely sort of the Uh, diversity in the films this year that I really enjoyed or kind of basically like non-white guy stories Um, Mm because I think we do see more from women this year um, but also uh, people of different ethnicities and and also kind of like a subcategory of that is these people sort of on the fringes I think that you 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 guys both have sort of mentioned and and also like the political side of stuff I think the response we're getting and at least for probably the three of us, I think some of this and and the people making the films is sort of a response to our current sort of national condition right now with the presidency and stuff. And, and that was so subtle that yeah, I yeah. almost didn't stress out. I know you, you didn't quite get that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that, that it is sort of like, what are we kind of looking at um, that's being affected by uh, our national condition and, not who is kind of being talked about in our government right now, but looking at these other side characters and kind of um, bringing out their stories a lot more. So kind of what things we've mentioned, Black Klansmen, If Beale Street Could Talk, Sorry to Bother You, Widows. uh, I don't know if we'll get into it too much, but I think The Hate You Give is actually a pretty good film for kind of being aimed at teenagers. Um, Oh, that was great, yeah. uh, Black Panther, Roma, Blind Spotting. Um, and then sort of the people at the fringes, uh, Leave No Trace, which I think we'll dig into, um, First Reformed, uh, even Mandy, I think, is really about people sort of trying to live their own life the way they want and sort of disrupted by that. And then uh, You Were Never Really Here, even Isle of Dogs, I think, has re- maybe uh, a lot more um, political connection than it, than it was intended at first. So I think those are kind of a breakdown of where we kind of want to dive into uh, a little bit. Let's talk a little bit about um, Leave No Trace, because that's one I know we've all three seen mm-hmm. and can think about a little bit more. And and is definitely kind of goes against the grain of mainstream in a lot of ways, um, even though it's not weird at all. But uh, I think for me, it's it's a very like quiet film in a lot of ways. Uh, what I what struck me is there's no really like antagonists in the film. 
everybody is trying to help them, even though like the father figure played by Ben Foster is dealing with a lot of like trauma and hard things. A lot of it is sort of like subtext and everybody like generally tries to help him. There was, there's one moment in the film later. And by the way, uh, Blake, if we didn't say this and our listeners, mm-hmm. we pretty much don't worry about spoilers on this show. Oh, yeah. So we're, we're going to assume we just want to like dig into things. So we're going to talk about it. Yeah. Man, but, I can't believe they left all those traces despite what the title <laughs> said. Yes. I yeah, know, I know. All, all those, those traces. All the traces yeah. <laughs> uh, no, no. But when he when he falls in the forest, and I thought I was like, oh, is this the movie? He's dead. The father dies. This I this is not the movie I thought we were watching. And then I was like, oh, he's not. Okay, and he's gonna get better. And people help him. Yeah. Um, and that and that really kind of sealed the the sort of tone of the film. And then I could be like, okay, I'm gonna kind of like ease into this and rest in this story and be like, this is what we're watching now. So um, I think it was you know really compassionate filmmaking dealing with these characters and just mm-hmm. kind of letting them be observed. I heard that once Ben Foster signed on, Deborah Granick, the director, and him just like went through and took out like 40% of the dialogue in the film just to kind of let it like rest more and not have so much exposition explaining everything, yeah. um, which I think was was really interesting. And I, could, I mean, I don't know because uh, I don't know about this stuff, but mm-hmm. um, I, I can, based on that fact, yeah, um, I could say that if I imagine that film with that exposition in it, it's not nearly as good. Um, I, I mean, I think that a, is interesting, yeah. a lot of the power of the film is that I think when people do talk, they have really interesting things to say. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, to echo your point about like the part at the beginning when sort of the dad doesn't die. I mean, uh, you know, to just be crass and to the point, I mean, the the emotional stakes of the film mm-hmm. are real. So I give a shit about these people. Yeah. Um, it's like, oh, like his dad is, I mean, because it's like, it, it, it's not true in the real world that every time someone gets injured, they die. Right. Right. Um, and uh, it's also not true that every dad who has his daughter out in the wilderness is really weird and sexually molests her or something, right. has some sort of dark family secret. Maybe yeah. it's just what it is. Um, so I really appreciated that. I also, I mean, I mean, I, I, I have a lot of friends who are vets um, and I, and in talking with them a lot of times like there's a lot of times why you know people will hang out with other people who had that experience is like you just can't really explain it mm-hmm. to other people why you can't quite fit in again and they somewhere. don't try very hard mm-hmm. in the film to explain it no they just show it yeah yeah, yeah. and I, I mean and i just was like a sucker for like that part at the end when she's holding the, the beehives and mm-hmm. you know and she, the warmth of of community is important to her but it's mm-hmm. you know it's different for her father yeah i mean i just uh you know <laughs> As I zoom out and make crazy claims about the information age, I mean, I think, like, in the information age, there's so much profound truth that we encounter in the world. Mm. We just consider it so cliche. <laughs> um, but it's, you know, the, if I think about the things that honestly affect and move me in my life, I, I learn them from rock songs and movies and a lot of other places. Yeah. Um, but they're, you know, important and powerful. And I think that mm. there's um, the movie. I think, I don't know, because its tone and pacing take itself seriously, um, it, it doesn't have to say big, grand, florid things mm-hmm. um, to be emotionally powerful. Yeah. I was going to say, there is a sensitivity and patience to it. And I, I don't want to entirely say Deborah Granick or Ben Foster one way or the other. The, the approach that they all agreed upon mm-hmm. is really kind of cool. And I love that you're suggesting, like, 
yeah, they stripped uh, X amount of dialogue. And I think to myself, in the hands of a more feeble director, this movie is five minutes away from Ben Foster giving like a big expository speech about like why he's troubled or the daughter trying to explain or examine her feelings. Yeah. Right. And I, I put this question out on Twitter around the time of release. When was the last time you saw a, a movie that dealt with poverty or homelessness that didn't kind of like do the befallen genius cliche like the soloist and Jamie Foxx living underneath mm-hmm. LA bridges um, or didn't kind of rely on like hobo jokes and stuff like that mm-hmm. that was just that, that, that j- a movie that just kind of gets to be yeah. and Deborah Granick um, based on I've only seen this and Winter's Bone from her, but from what I see from her is a person who has a very patient, considered eye. And whereas Winter's Bone um, is, is very directly a send up of like uh, Westerns and it's kind of modern muted choices. Yeah. Um, it's almost like a revenge thriller in a, in a minor key. This is almost like a Robert Altman film with an even more muted key and that mm. it's just purely observational and incidental. Um and yeah, as a result, like that that relationship, the sincerity of that relationship kind of gets to blossom in a way that's actually quite affecting. And to the, my earlier point about memorability, it's like, gosh, not a whole lot happens if you think about the movie because it's their their sojourn to survive, not in sensationalist terms, but in basic terms. Mm-hmm. But there's something very affecting about that that close knit bond. And there is also something very like this is what it's like to live in America right now. Our veterans are kind of struggling on the back end. Uh, some people just kind of don't know how to come back inside when they've been evicted from their homes. And it's I know I'm speaking kind of in culture cliches and tropes, but there is something very truthful to this observation that feels like this could be anybody, three people removed from people you know, you know, mm-hmm. like yeah. watching, um, what is it, uh, Minding the Gap, the, the Rockford documentary mm-hmm. uh, from Hulu that's ostensibly about young kids that are kind of lost at a generational like crossroads and they wind up moving all over the country just to kind of find work. I feel like spiritually leave no trace and minding the gap could kind of hang out with each other in that mm. sense. Same with Monrovia, Indiana, the Wiseman movie where it's basically like a small town in America clinging to life, even though it's kind of falling behind uh, with, you know, kind of the growing divide in this country. Um, but Leave No Trace, I, as a narrative form, uh, or as a narrative take on this, was very, very compelling because it's just, it's it's true, or at least it feels true, right. you know? Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, I don't know about this aspect for sure, but I feel like some of the people they encounter, maybe in these smaller communities, um, were not actors. Um, and, and in general, it feels sort of um, improvisational in the acting style. And kind of what you're getting at to both of you, uh, kind of this undercurrent of like dissatisfaction with our country and the way it works. I feel like we kind of get these little treasures of movies the last couple of years, at least one. It kind of has like mm-hmm. a kinship with uh, Florida Project and American Honey and even going back to like Beasts of the Southern Wild where like we get these aspects um of our nation that you don't normally see or uh, are sort of ignored um, these people. But I think it brings up something that, that these people don't feel comfortable in the sort of system the way it is. Um, and eventually I think we're sort of have to deal with that. Um, and maybe it's growing in certain, certain populations. So 
Um, I'm really glad that people are willing to tell these stories and, and in such an insightful way um, people do. And I, and I think that, that kind of fits in with that Leave No Trace. Yeah. Um, let's, uh, let's move on and, um, talk about some other things. Um, uh, let's move to if Beale Street could talk, because, uh, this is one that I was really excited to see, um, and took a while to kind of get around to, um, our neck of the woods, uh, a little bit later. (laughs) Um, and, you know, I have to say that I am totally on team Barry Jenkins, um, after this in Moonlight, and uh, I know he did some TV work. Jeremy and I have talked about um, the Netflix show, um, which I'm blanking on right now. Um, Dear, white, Dear people. white People. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, yeah. Which yeah he did an episode for that. Episode. Yeah. The single best episode of Dear yeah, White Yeah, really people. good episode. And <laughs> I, I would say with Reggie and the party. Yeah. And I know it's pretty well talked about now, um, but I feel like I did notice this and it was right before I heard a, a podcast interview with Barry Jenkins. But in just watching the trailer for If Beale Street Could Talk, I was like, he is conjuring um, Wong Kar Wai with what he's doing. And I think it's not stealing, but I was like, he is the next Wong Kar Wai. And then uh, I heard an interview, and they were asking some of his favorite films. And um, he was like, you know, in the mood for love, he's like, that's just one of the best. And he's like, if I could do something like that, if I can evoke anything Did, like um, that. Yeah. Just a quick, do you ever see the Criterion Collection video where Barry's invited into the Criterion closet and he just starts like grabbing every last thing he can being <laughs> like, oh my God, Cassavetes, Wong Kar Wai, like all these people. It's it's super endearing it's because really, yeah. clearly he's he's a lifelong student, which is something mm-hmm. I appreciate. I, I, I love that you're bringing that up because he totally wears his references on his sleeve. Yeah. 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 And, and I think I was just like, uh, so taken with sort of the poetry of this film, even though mm-hmm. it deals with um, some really hard subjects. And I, and I think it's almost that sort of contrast um, with how sort of lovely the the costuming and um, the camera work and, and especially the music. I think the music is a big part of this film, which is probably my favorite score of the year. Uh, but those the way those things come together is sort of intoxicating and then sort of with these sort of blunt moments of um, racism coming into it, I think was was really great. How do you feel about it, Blake? Um, right there with you. It, it, and like I said, it took me a moment to, to warm up to in the sense that when you're adapting James Baldwin prose, like uh, it, the phrase wax poetic comes to mind. <laughs> and, um, I mean, he's he borders on surrealism and yeah. arch structuralism with his style. Um, he takes a lot of momentary lapses. He's very generous to Baldwin's prose and narration. Um, but you also feel like Jenkins genuinely cares about kind of conveying the prose with every tool and frame of reference he can think of. When you were mentioning Wong Kar Wai, also, don't forget, like, uh, what is it, the photography of Jack Garofalo mm. or... Or Roy Disareva, I want to say that's pronunciation, or even Gordon Parks in general, and kind of capturing 1970s Harlem in terms of its texture, like the mm-hmm. architectural uh, repetition, mathematics, hallways, uh, open streets, kind of the the beauty and the grime and dirt and brickstone and things like that to kind of portray the the environment that these people live in. There there is kind of a beauty in mm-hmm. the systemic hopelessness to it, I, I guess. Not not to mix my cliches yeah but um 
Jenkins swings wide. I, mm-hmm. you know, I, I've been deconstructing this over and over, trying to look at all the different frames of mind for this movie, the moods and expressiveness of it. What it all boils down to is this is a, a, a supreme love story yeah. about impossible hope, impossible love against all odds, against systemic uh, criminal, uh, just, uh, you know, circumstances that make it impossible for this wonderful young couple. Um, what are their names again? Uh, uh, Tish and Fani, mm-hmm. uh, Kiki Lane and Stephen James, respectively. Like they're just so they're so beautifully naive and hopeful, right. and they kind of have to be thrown through the grinder of life and all its ills. Um, and I don't know. I just I kind of like I you know held a hanky the whole time not to <laughs> like yeah. my mom, but I'm thinking to myself. This is a relationship that I don't know if it's built to last, but my God, do I want these two kids to make it through and for their child to 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 make it out okay despite all of this, even though you kind of know the amount of pressure that's being put down upon them. And Barry uh, uh, Jenkins uses like every illustrative quality he can think of in terms of film from uh, a direct eye contact to the camera, sweeping camera mm-hmm. movements, colored imagery, highly saturated, colorful imagery mm-hmm. to kind of get at this like poetic verve it's almost like looking at a um, an impulse record album cover or something like that yeah. and I love that you mentioned the score too from that initial trailer and Nicholas Bertel's trumpet swinging over there I'm like wow is he trying to channel miles right now because I appreciate the audaciousness of trying to do that mm-hmm. um, it, yeah it's it really it it's a movie that just goes all out it where in you kind of see everybody put their heart onto the screen knowing full well that this is going to be a rough ride, but they're committed to the the belief, hope and faith of young love and things like that. And this is the kind of stuff that normally makes me cringe to say out loud, but it's mm-hmm. like, no, no, this is the, like one of the most difficult and rewarding love stories of the modern era, at least that I can think of. Yeah. I mean, it, it, if you kind of talk about it, it almost sounds like it shouldn't work, you know, no, um, in no, a lot of ways. And and you're right about sort of the Baldwin like prose like translating that to film. And I realize later like it's got a lot of the same structure actually, sort of as Moonlight, where it's it's elliptical in many ways that we sort of like yeah. jump to these different points. And and I generally like this, but it's almost like um, the narrative is based sort of on like memory because we come back to the some of the same moments kind of replayed. Um, as if it's almost like Fani in prison sort of thinking mm. back on um, their sort of romance and, and where that's going. Um, but so, but there's moments where we kind of jump quickly between different times. And then there's other times where we just sort of spend quite a while in like smaller moments, like uh, when they're first going to tell their families about being pregnant, uh, like that scene goes on for quite a while you know that we we sort of oh and they they bathe in it yeah yeah Yeah. what could be like the most dangerous moment in a young people's life Mm -hmm. uh the scariest moment is just that like you're bathed in love and support and and cautious optimism Mm -hmm. uh with with full acknowledgement of their naivete but it's like wow that that really could have gone way worse but it went about as well as you could have hoped yeah (laughs) yeah until it does go bad yeah (laughs) with uh with the in-laws yeah um yeah yeah and and i think even like little moments where after they look at this uh apartment that they want to get uh the sort of loft apartment and then they're just sort of like walking on the street and sort of beaming from 
the the thought of the sort of freedom that they have of of moving there and it was just so like lovely kind of gave me chills but then I was like I don't like even in the moment I was like I don't know why this is so fascinating to watch them just sort of like walking down the street but I think it captured that um they they do have great chemistry um you could see kind of the love between them and uh really kind of feel their emotions and 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 with that score and that camera work um was really nice and I also heard that they really thought about the look a lot like you were saying Blake and yeah. they tried to capture sort of street photography from the time but as if it was sort of exposed freshly like the film was exposed freshly instead of the sort of washed out look we're used to um yeah. from seeing films in that period with all those vibrant colors um and, and it does kind yeah, go ahead. Correctly, Laxton, who shot Moonlight, shot this. And if mm-hmm. Moonlight was any indicator, the, the guy has a, a willingness to play with color that I find so admirable. Yeah. Um, it, I, this is totally a put down to, to some, like, whenever I talk to people about cinematography, everybody leans on, well, it's got to have silhouettes like Roger Deakins. I find it more <laughs> impressive. And don't get me wrong, I think no, he's yeah, the yeah. best at silhouettes. Um, I I'm a sucker for color rich. I'm a sucker for oversaturated imagery. And I love how you put that like old photography re-exposed and found fresh. I think of that red umbrella in the middle of the night down a rainy street mm-hmm. or kind of lens flares or like it doesn't look grimy like a 1970s crime film. It looks, right. uh, you know, extremely, extremely rich and almost inviting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think, uh, you know, why it works is that Barry Jenkins is ultimately like professional enough that he is in full control over what he's conveying to the audience. And, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, he's manipulating the audience in the way that he wants. Um, and I think that's a really sign of a, of a great director, um, to really bring you along on that journey. Um, so I, I'm, I'm excited about what he does next. Probably a Batman. Probably, yeah, superhero. Film, yeah. <laughs> no. We can only something hope. Marvel, yeah, yeah, Black Panther two. Yeah, I hope uh, he gets good. Money. Oh my gosh, yeah. you know Barry Jenkins with Black Panther man, amazing. <laughs> so let's let's talk a little bit about uh, First Reformed. I know it's a little bit farther down on your list, Blake, uh, but this is one that really surprised me. I think it is sort of Paul Schrader a little bit in his going back to his taxi driver mode um, in that sort of type of story. But the difference here is that this is a very sensitive character that we can really identify with instead of uh, a different on the fringes in a different way than um, in taxi driver. I think that we can kind of root for and understand the sort of emotions that he's going through with like, delving into understanding the environment and what that means for his life. Um, sort of this ex- existential crisis that he's going through as a priest. I didn't know about this beforehand, but um, Paul Schrader uh, evidently wrote a book early in his career um, out of grad school about the sort of transcendental style um, of filmmakers like Brisson and Ozu. And uh, this is essentially his chance to work within that style, basically. Because definitely, (laughs) with his last few films in the last few years, he's definitely swung much more the other direction and kind of, like, thrown everything at the screen um, that he can. And doggy dog with Nick Cage. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Mm. 
Uh, and so this here, the ugliest movie. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, no. Um, I mean, I feel like in some ways, at least he's trying things. But I'm glad that he sort of like was able to understand what he needed to tell this story. And it seems like a very personal story um, that he's interested in. But for me, it was like those. He sticks to a very strict rules about the style of the film that he's making. A lot of like lockdown. Um, shots uh, that are that are steady, they don't move. Um, longer takes that just lets you kind of observe what's happening, um, and then those sort of main two moments where he sort of breaks out of that, I think, do sort of uh, give you that sort of transcendent experience, um, and then sort of like flip that on its head a little bit too to make you not sure what you're supposed to think. Um, so I could go more into that, but I, I kind of want to hear what you guys. Yeah, I mean, um, I uh, let's see. Um, I mean, I, I guess today I'm I'm playing sort of like the the barbarian <laughs> to you high class folks. I mean, um, I had uh, um, as many things go between Eli and I. Eli and I had said, "Hey, have you seen First Reformed?" And like, I looked it up and I saw the poster and I was like, "That." fucking movie i was like i read a little bit about it and i was like no i I haven't seen that tense gripping thriller right um and he's like you would like it and and even though in general when eli says that um i should watch the movie because i really would like it but you know he's very subtle subtle. he's like uh you know maybe you'd like it might be good um anyway and so i um uh i guess i'm kind of hot and cold these days but Mm. um like from just about like the first three or four seconds into the film, I was just sort of totally hooked. Mm. Um, uh, I love Ethan Hawke's character. Um, it's uh, and, and there's and like and I love myself some good like philosophy. And mm-hmm. there's there's so much good philosophical positioning in this film, but it's it's so terse. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't. I mean, there's no pontificating. Yeah. Like, at, you know, at best, it's like a sentence or two. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just, I mean, for me, like, it, uh, it really, um, I don't know, brought me on a journey where I reconsidered the relationship of humanity, religion, and the environment. Mm. Um, and, I, and I think, like, because, I mean, if I look at the film, like, the first transcendent experience when they play the Magic Mystery Tour, where I was like, Whoa! Like <laughs> you are motherfucking going for right, it, right? Right? Yeah. And, and where'd that come from? And, yeah. and I'm pretty sure, like the some of the visual references are definitely to Koyaanisqatsi, like uh, certainly from the yeah. cars and the lanes. Mm-hmm. You know, well, I, I even felt Tarkovsky to a certain yeah, extent, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. so well, yeah. Um, you know, but I think both. I mean, I think that like he's, you know, in some sense, like just taking a little survey of some of the strongest. Our visual mm-hmm. arguments about the environment mm-hmm. um, and humanity, and presenting it in, in in like to an audience that he fully expects and motivates to give a shit about it, mm-hmm. um, and I do. Yeah, I, I am totally along for that ride. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really like in that moment what I was kind of talking about, like the switch is like yeah. I was just sort of like processing what he was doing, right? Like switching to that, and then like sort of just like resting and be like, oh okay, this is what we're looking at. And then it turns, like, dark, and it's like, oh, he can't, like, that character can't stay in that sort of view of the world, yeah. you know? And it turns really dark, um, which I liked. Like, Yeah, and me I mean, in. like, I mean, I'm a big fan of Thomas Merton's writing. Like, I'm mm-hmm. literally going to his monastery next week for a silent <laughs> retreat. So, like, yeah. 
any any film that throws in some like heavyweight references to Thomas Merton, I'm like I'm totally you know hook line and sinker all the way through. Um, I also I mean and and this is like my favorite kind of like fish out of water um, film where like th- there's someone in the world who they just can't they just can't get it yeah um, and you know and I think we find and and so I was. I was also really happy with Cedric the Entertainer's character. Yeah. Because I feel like he's definitely set up to be absurd and he's not. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and like certainly cuz he's he is in no like he says wonderful things. Yeah. There's nothing about bit, his yeah. demeanor that in any way is ridiculous. It's not making fun of him. No, yeah. not at all. And, and and not even like that kind of church or anything. Mm-hmm. Um and and but we're t- I mean well we I uh, and I assume the rest who are following along in this journey are totally with um, Ethan Hawke's character mm-hmm. in that like he he just doesn't fit no one else quite seems to get it and one of the things that I there's a moment in there that I, is, I you know I mean I'm gushing but that I, I kind of like the most is there's a point when he's talking about um, uh, when he I think when he tells um, Mary after Michael is his name has killed himself mm-hmm. he's like you should hide the laptop and a few other things and he just throws out like because his cause was just yeah you know like you know like and and, and we don't yeah. want to hurt the movement because of some stuff and i was like did did you believe that when we started this film <laughs> right yeah, i was yeah. like did, i i think you, you you had a change of heart that we didn't see mm-hmm. and um now wow like whoa yeah and 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 there's several times in the film too like there's a break when he tears out pages hmm. You know, and I'm like, we just don't know what happens there. Yeah, I was like, just you know, with it, yeah. you know, like, and, and like, as you know, if I snap out of the the viewer and go into the, like, so the filmmaker mode, I'm like, that takes some balls. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> you know, you're really gonna and and, and you know, like, um, and, and it works really well. Like, it mm-hmm. it, it doesn't seem like, um, the, the effect cheating, is yeah. that I'm more drawn into the story. Mm-hmm. I am more interested because there are plenty of times, and I complain about it too on this podcast where some filmmaker like causes an ellipsis to happen over something and I'm like that's just because you can't write that right that's because <laughs> right. You, you don't know you how know to get us from point there. A to yeah. point B and in this case I'm just like oh like you know like there's like the place where he tears out the pages I'm immediately far more interested than I was a second ago mm. um and and I do and again like I uh, you know I, I like a good nice tight story that doesn't involve floating in space um but if you're gonna have floating <laughs> in space and wrapping yourself in you know um, uh, uh, barbed wire barbed wire to be christ-like um just do it and and the thing is like that shot at the end um when he's sitting at his desk mm-hmm. like and uh taking off his he take off a shirt and he's he's getting ready with his vest to go mm-hmm. into the thing there's like it's it's it feels like such a, a subtle and amazing shot at the same time because he's got his his service um, flag up in the corner. Mm. They're 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 playing uh, onward, Christian soldier. Yeah. Um. And it, I, you know, and it was just like it was is screaming at me with its meaning, mm-hmm. but also like if I were to take out that still and put it on the wall, it, it just sort of subtly mentions a couple different things. Mm. Um. And I, you know, I, I, I feel like you know with, with these two bold sort of surrealist steps that are taken in the film, mm-hmm. um, it that's sort of what made it really stand out. Yeah. Like the story is interesting. Besides mm-hmm. us, and I think Ethan yep. Hawke's character is compelling, but it, it doesn't for me rise to the level of holy shit. Yeah, you know, like, I, and I tell people like you, you know, you have to see this. And then the third thing that I love, which 
is I I just love it is uh what I like the deception in the um the movie poster mm. because like the movie poster shows an exploded church yeah so like and I you know like. 45 minutes into the film, he gets an explosive vest. And I'm like, he's going to blow up that motherfucking church. <laughs> but, but he doesn't. Yeah. Um, and, and I love, and I loved it. Cause I was like, oh man, you put that, who put that in the poster? Right. You know, like who, who like put a gigantic, super important spoiler in the poster? <laughs> you know, it's like Luke, like, like, it's like the poster for Empire Strikes Back is Luke, I am your father. You right. know, you can't, you can't do that. Um, so I like, I mean, I, and then when I saw that he didn't do it or that element doesn't show up in the film, um, I was like, oh, you know, because in some sense, as I talked about before, it gives mm-hmm. us multiple endings to consider, multiple possibilities of the story. Yeah. It also makes me feel manipulated in like a really positive way. Hmm. Like, here's me like, oh, I'm, I'm a viewer. I totally know what's going to happen. Yeah, oh, my gosh, I got it because I saw the poster. Um, and then I was like, oh, oh you, you probably knew that I saw the poster. <laughs> so you were having a good time. Yeah. Um, the other thing that I'll, I'll mention just really quickly, um, I... Um, I, I don't think it was made this year, but I just listened to the podcast S Town, mm-hmm. um, which is fabulous. Um, mm-hmm. But Shit Town, yeah. yeah. And but so, but like in both of these stories, there is an individual who is like deeply troubled by the environment. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, like given there isn't mercury poisoning involved in First Reformed, but I don't think that's entirely what John B's story is. But there is a way in which, like, I've always wondered, um, even from when I was a kid, if like when people started talking about the, the dangers of global warming at that time, climate change as it mm-hmm. went on. Like, what are, like, is there going to be a film? You know, because people used mm-hmm. to talk about, like, Rachel Carson's book, Silent Spring, being this clarion call for a generation of folks. Yeah. Um, you know, and, uh, you know, I've always been fascinated with the ways in which people in the past talk about what the future's going to be like. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, for, and I'm, you know, I, I, I was always curious how, like what would be what what would it look like in the years leading up to massive change, either on humans' part or the environment's part, and yeah. climate change, um, and just to see these two really profound stories of individuals—one fictional, one run real—deeply uh, moved and motivated almost solely by the effect that humans have on the planet, it sort of stuck out at me because um, they're not there. There's not it, certainly in fresh reformed, and I'll, I'll wrap up here because I know I talk a long time. Um, it, no one really contests the truth of what the people are like no one really contests that michael is correct mm. and, and even when the yeah. priest i mean and, and the priest point him which i think is like fabulous is like it's he says to him like the the issue isn't that humanity is going to kill itself which you know we, we've been <laughs> threatened with this before the issue is the darkness inside of you mm. which you know which is like it, it's it's essentially one or two lines but it's like one of the more profound things that I've ever heard said about despair of climate change and the environment. Like, mm-hmm. sure, that may be true. Mm-hmm. Humanity may extinguish itself. Yeah. Um, but that doesn't have to affect what you as an individual person are doing with your life. True. Um, which yeah. is, you know, generally not something I've ever heard in a film before. Yeah, and that is an interesting connection to the podcast because I think they were both sort of like characters that sort of like burnt out in the end. Yeah in sort of being like isolated for this thing that they saw as being really passionate and people should yeah. care about that they were in positions that they just could not be hurt like they had to do something drastic and i think they were both like in many ways compassionate characters oh, deep, towards yeah. things and people around them but not in a way that people could like notice or recognize either and like that frustration between those two things just sort of destroys them yeah. inside you know, it's funny you mentioned the despair stuff, though. I, I'll admit this is the only movie this year that it actually took me two tries to get through. <laughs> That's I, okay. In all, no, in all yeah. seriousness, I uh, I got 
20 minutes into the first watch and once the poor environmentalist kind of starts making his speech about uh, rising oceans temperatures climate change i it, it's like i started to let out sweat like bullets turned it off and i was like what's on top chef not to say that <laughs> right, not right. courageous or anything but like um yeah that is this film's most potent quality like there is a sense of nervous urgency and i mean it speaks volumes that like i'm kind of haunted by ethan hawk somebody has to do something uh exclamation late right. in the film and it's mm-hmm. just like that could be that's applicable to so much mm-hmm. uh <laughs> yeah. modern life and I guess, really, I like the film for all the same reasons that you guys do. I, I think there is something kind of profound to this. I think Paul Schrader using the Ozu style and kind of referencing transcendentalism in this kind of like clean, stately, minimalist, thoughtful style. It's something I really uh, shouldn't take for granted because it's so hard to find movies like this that have a foresight of thought. Yep. Here's the problem with that style. And this is a purely a discussion of aesthetics and um, personal preference. Um, I think when you have a solemn, direct, ethereal piece like this, when you have something that is very directorly, as I uh, just made up the word for no, uh, <laughs> that works. Yeah. Like, it's all, you know, people brag that they know that it's Academy ratio. I Then suddenly I see memes of this on, on Twitter and Instagram. Mm. Um, I actually saw somebody retell the entire story through four stills from The Simpsons, which I thought was actually pretty <laughs> impressive. Uh, like the Space Wolf and Homer Overweight with Marge laying on him and stuff like that. And I was kind of impressed. But I realized this is this is a movie within the same vein as Paul Thomas Anderson's kind of style and adult mm. subject matter. And I'm not trying to knock Schrader Anderson so much as I'm saying there's something about that this level of overconfidence as well as um, that I think lends itself a little too easily to parody. Yeah. Um, or ability to kind of like to tune out or not fully take seriously. Like it is so solemn to the point where you can't help but nervously laugh. And that is the only pitfall that I see for what I think is an extremely audacious film. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like, remember when Phantom Thread came out and all of a sudden you have random Phantom Thread comment generators, or maybe I'm just on Twitter for too long. Uh, <laughs> um, but it's just, it's cut like people lo- eat this kind of stuff up when it's like so sartorial in, in your mm-hmm. face. That's why The Shining is such a popular meme because of all these perfectly sta- uh, squared off images and things like that. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it is very like mannered and yes. persnickety sort of in how it looks and acts. So I think that could definitely be a turnoff to people. Like it, it sort of is pretentious in the way that it starts. But I think once you go through the whole journey, it, it becomes very yeah. emotional. Yeah. And it's not a movie I dislike in any way. So much mm-hmm. as that's something I, I kind of, I, I just, I'm always suspicious of something that has this much confidence. I guess is what yeah. I'm saying. You know. Yeah. Uh, and you know, Schrader wrote freaking cat people the remake and taxi driver (laughs) yeah that man knows confidence and that man probably knows cocaine um so like but no it's still great and so many colleagues are like i really shaken up by this movie so that's something to admire for better for worse i mean the the academy ratio you're talking about one thing i did notice this year and i think we're going to kind of do like a separate segment on television um later jeremy and i but uh 
talking about, I noticed like a trend this year with First Reformed, um, Cold War, which I, I really like for sort of like intentionally black and white, somewhat period films compared with Roma. I much more was attached to uh, Cold War. Um, I don't think there's like a lot of direct comparisons between those two films, but um, mm-hmm. it felt more like an actual auteur working in their element than Roma felt like um, trying to work in that vein. Um, and that's coming from someone who's like been a long time Alfonso Caron since like the little princess, which I thought was great. Um, and I was really like, uh, it just, seemed, yeah. it just yeah. seemed like he was trying to be an artsy European film, um, in that, but, uh, also the show homecoming, all three of these kind of use the smaller, uh, frame and I think it it all speaks to sort of this constraint in the characters like definitely in First Reformed he becomes more and more sort of like bottled up and uh, has to sort of like let out this anxiety that he has um, uh, about the world in some way and do something about it like we talked about so he's like uh, the, the corners are really like the sides are coming in on every and every every way on him um, sort of uh to form. And I think it's the same way with like Cold War, which is this kind of devastating romance where these characters are sort of on and off again and can't quite stay together. But it's it's this it's a love story, but it's the world sort of imposing itself on that story. And then Homecoming, mm-hmm. I don't know if anybody else has seen that um, on Amazon, but it, it, it uses this device where it switches between a normal sort of wide frame and then the smaller um, aspect ratio or uh, academy ratio um, to show sort of the a character who's sort of like missing out on their full memory. So it sort of like cuts in on the frame because they don't they don't remember everything. And then there's there's a great moment in the show where uh, they sort of um, recall this, and then suddenly like the frame like widens. Um, and it sort of jumps back and forth in different periods of time, and it sort of connects those time periods, which I thought was a great use. But it, it stuck out to me, these different um, filmmakers using this um, to stand out these days and kind of going back to that one. Now we're so used to wide frames on everything. Yeah. So. Cold War felt like it was a framework use, uh, like a framework of nostalgia or snapshot mm. of the past. The same way that Grand Budapest Hotel kind of starts wide and, uh, you know, through yeah. different time periods, uh, mm. closes up the framework. Um, unlike a Mission Impossible movie where it's just switching from widescreen to IMAX, which drives people <laughs> crazy. Yeah. I personally don't care, but uh, no, uh, yeah, yeah. I, I love when... Yeah, people kind of use this device, and or or maybe next year we'll be nominating or ranking our first uh, Instagram ratio uh, movie that's completely vertical, and we'll all have to tilt our necks. Yeah, it'll be awful. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I like to um, tell people that they should turn their phones sideways to take videos, and a lot of we give this advice a lot. The young people are like, why? Why do you need... Oh I'm just goodness. posting this on social media. So. <laughs> oh. Don't you need to see my story in vertical? Oh, that's crazy. 